hey man, you ready to roll? Yeah, dude, I just gotta take my CBD first. This stuff's so goddamn expensive. I wish my benefits covered it. Hey, actually, I know a guy who's pushing for that. For real? Okay, welcome to Second Story, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Corey Leckie. That guy that's always there with me is Josh Zabalski. And joining us today is Dr. Blake Pearson. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, so Blake, you began as a family physician. You've since moved into kind of a more holistic approach to medicine, mainly in the field of cannabinoids, which used to treat all types of ailments, right? Chronic pain and mental health and sleep disorders, dementia. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and what made you turn towards this type of medicine? Sure. So I originally got my start as a family physician and did that for a few years and and really started using the cannabinoid-based medicines in my own patient population. So just like you mentioned, Corey, chronic pain, we had a lot of seniors. So that's really how it began. And then once I started to see the benefits in some of these patients and being able to get them off things like opioids or some sleep medications like lorazepam or the benzodiazepines, uh, medications that we're moving away from due to the harms, uh, I, thought, I thought to myself, okay, this, this seems uh, very beneficial, minimal side effects. And then I really uh, did a deep dive into the science and different conferences and really educated myself ultimately to start my own cannabinoid practice. And just as you mentioned, it's expanded now from chronic pain to sleep disorders, which are certainly the most common referrals, but to things like dementia, agitation with dementia, and even into um, children with autism, severe autism that self-harm. We use cannabinoids to help reduce some of those behaviors. Like, obviously, you're still dealing with families. You're still dealing with um, all the same types of patients you were before, but what made you turn towards that specifically? Really, it was the it was the impact that it had and how it could change someone's life. So certainly we need primary care physicians and they do a great job. And but for me, it was I didn't feel I was having that impact um, that I could have. Like when you when you can improve someone's life by, for example, the essential tremor patients where they can't hold a cup of coffee or they can't eat. And then they can, because you steady their tremor out with something like CBD, you really, patient feels good, you feel good. And it was really just that. It was, I was having a harder time um, monitoring things like cholesterol and some of these things where you really wanted the patient to take ownership. And I was getting much more into uh, exercise, nutrition as a means to avoid these things. So it was kind of a mix of, more of a holistic train of thought for chronic disease. And then also um, on the cannabinoid side, seeing some of these very interesting cases and having these great results that made me made me switch. Um, I have my own biases when it comes to medicine. I actually, I do take CBD for chronic pain. Hmm. So I am somebody who's, who's benefited from it. Um, I was very apprehensive at first about taking it. Uh, so to give the full story, I, I have had a back issue since I was probably 18. So going on 20 years, uh, currently I'm waiting on double hip surgery and I have been for many, many years. Our lovely healthcare system is 
super expedient. So I should be in there in the next couple of years, I hope. Um, but when I when I when people started talking to me about CBD and taking it for you know inflammation and chronic pain and things like that, I was like, really? Like, is that something that's actually going to help me? So I I kind of took it begrudgingly. Um, and it, it worked and it, I've been using it for almost two years and it's, it's kept me out of the hospital essentially. But so going back to my state of mind, I think the way I felt is probably pretty common, like in how people actually feel about using things like CBD, THC, cannabis, all those, you know, how do you overcome that with patients? P- people who come in who are like, I don't think this will work for me. Yeah. It's, it's a very common scenario. That's for sure. And not just with patients, Josh, but even for other physicians and healthcare practitioners. So the truth is there, there was, there was basically kind of this, uh, false narrative where it's like CBD and THC are great for everything and they'll fix any of your ailments. And that's really what causes, of course, a lot of physicians and patients to be skeptical but to your point on the results for certain conditions, yeah, there is there is benefit, and it's because of CBD and THC. They both have anti-inflammatory properties, so that that narrative is true. You know, there's good bench science to support that they modulate the immune system to reduce inflammation. Um, so you you kind of get over that uh, stigma, if you will, with education and the results. So. I guess to summarize, it it really can help, but it doesn't help everything. And it's it's important to to be specific with the condition and and be honest with the patients about it. So I I find it funny you bring up uh, talking about physicians. Every time I tell, well, not every time I shouldn't speak in absolutes, but most of the time when I'm talking to a doctor and I tell them that I only take CBD when so they ask about medication, they're always shocked because they'll look at my MRIs or my CAT scans. And the level of, you know, discomfort I should be in. And then they're like, so what medications are you on? I just tell them CBD. And they're always like, really? That's it? Like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> that and exercise and, you know, not eating inflammatory foods. And that's that's pretty much what takes care of it. Um, do you think, just to, going back in a little bit of history about like cannabis and stuff like that. When we grew up, Corey's a little bit older than me. A lot older than me. Uh, <laughs> he, uh yeah, not that much older. Um, there was so much like propaganda and dogma against cannabis from when I was a kid. Like the whole Reagan era of the 80s, like just say no and mm-hmm. you know that whole thing that I still think so many people carry that today when they hear cannabis. And you just look at how long it took to get legalized. Mm-hmm. How much do you think that plays into it? Just history and, and sort of what we've been brought up with. Huge, huge. And still, even though it's legalized, still tons of stigma. So it really got, cannabis got a, a real raw deal um, because not only is there the stigma, but but with that, there was the inability to do research on CBD and THC. And a lot of the funded research, 60s, 70s, 80s by NIDA in the U.S., was only through the lens of harms. So you have this big list of studies that was clearly focused on harms without having any of the the research on the benefits. Now, the good thing with legalization, with things changing in the US, uh, believe it or not, it was schedule one up until, it still is, but Congress just passed 
um, to change it to schedule three. And what that means, schedule one was there was no medicinal value. You couldn't do research. It was akin to heroin and cocaine. Just, just absurd. Um, so the good news is now that, uh, we can research it. You're seeing a lot of the studies that supported what a lot of patients were saying in the past. So stigma is still a thing, but with education and more of these studies coming out, it is starting to, to lessen. If, uh, if people are history buffs and you look back on the history on how they actually made marijuana illegal, in the, especially in the States, it's pretty wild to read. A lot of it was just lobbying, yeah. particularly like plastics manufacturers uh, wanted it to be illegal. I think newspaper yeah. manufacturers as well. Yeah. Very, um, and very then, racist too. A lot of racial undertones. Yeah. I was going to bring up Nixon in the seventies. Mm -hmm. like his voter base was not African-Americans mm -hmm. and uh, he was more than happy to throw them all in the jail and prison so that they couldn't vote. So that was a great way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, also the pharmaceutical industry wasn't a huge fan of it as well. So you had all those components yeah. and uh it led to a very large lobby against having legalized cannabis yeah yeah and on the pharmaceutical industry too there's there's still they're putting up a lot of barriers because it's it really is a game changer in that you know we have patients that can come off a sleep medication so like a, a uh, ambien or lorazepam or zopiclone they can potentially come off a Lyrica or a gabapentin, so a, a pain medication. Now they're sleeping better, their pain's better managed, so they come off of their antidepressant. So it really is disruptive in that it, it can reduce polypharmacy or the number of medications someone's on, which of course affects the bottom line for those pharmaceutical companies. And the other thing too that is, is getting in the way of progress is you can't patent CBD or THC. So a big knock on physicians adopting this is there isn't enough evidence or the lar their large randomized control trial, uh, which costs millions of dollars because nobody can, can patent it, claim it as their own course, uh, monetize that. So you'll see in cannabinoid science, great studies, but they only have 40 participants, 50 participants because they're funded by universities or private companies. Um, and that's where the, you just, you don't see the physician adoption because the study's too small, but it's this, it's this reciprocal kind of process that, that if you just take a step back and kind of have a common sense view, it, it does make sense, but that's often an argument from, from a lot of the folks on the medicine side. So yeah, fi like Pfizer's not going to get involved in, in the whole thing, right? So they that kind of the idea. That's that's kind of the idea. They won't they won't support, let's say, a whole plant extract because can't can't patent that. But what they are getting involved with, and they have bought a cannabinoid science company, is um, like isolates or really isolating or making a new cannabinoid molecule that basically is the same as, C as CBD or THC with just a, a small change to the to the side chain or something like that to make it unique. So there's, there's big money being spent on that side of things. And the first medication to kind of hit the stage and, and make a pharmaceutical company a lot of money, Epidiolex, is an example of that. So that's pharma CBD that went through the testing and um, 
GW Pharma, who developed it, sold it to Jazz Pharmaceuticals for like five or six billion dollars, something crazy like that. Man, it's a nice payday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it is developing, but it's it's very specific pharmaceutical uh, isolates, which generally, when you do that, doses have to be higher, side effects are more because when you can use the whole plant with the array of cannabinoids, the minor cannabinoids, the terpenes you have a more of an effect with smaller doses and they're better tolerated. But when you use these isolates, it's higher doses and usually more side effects. Interesting. Corey, do you have a question? I got, a, I got another one. If you don't No, hit up, hit them up. All right. Yeah. I feel like you're just sitting there like an idiot. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I assume that this would be a big conversation between the two of you because I know Josh's situation uh, with healthcare and all the waiting around you've done all the opiate pushing that's happened to you like mm-hmm. and then and then Blake I know your side you've been sort of fighting for things like coverage and opiate reduction and yeah. things like that so yeah well on that note too on the opiate side and and coverage it's it's mind-blowing that um Josh for instance if you were if you were on disability you could be I could start you on an opioid for your pain and it would be covered. And I would actually have to because it's covered. You don't want to pay out of pocket for your CBD. And we have so many folks on disability who do want to switch or, or they're, they want to lower their opioid doses, but they simply can't even start because they have to buy the CBD out of pocket. So they're forced because there's not a lot of money, um, to folks on disability monthly, they're forced to to stay on their opioid because they need to buy their groceries, they need to pay their rent, and it's just it's it's a massive injustice in the country. For sure. So you just described my story almost to the letter. Uh, so when I got out of the hospital, I was in the hospital for six weeks, couldn't walk. Got out of the hospital, still could barely walk, um, and I was prescribed uh, hydromorphone, Celebrex, Lyrica, and one other medication that I, I forget what it was. But anyways, um, the hydromorphone was pretty terrifying, especially when I was in the hospital. I was on such a high dose that I was sleeping between 20 and 22 hours a day. And my wife was basically like, this thing's getting your its hooks into you. You need to get off of it. So I just started to slowly lower the dose, but my pain increased. And then when I got out of the hospital, I was I had all this free medication that my benefits were covering. And then people were recommending CBD. And I went to a store and I was like, it's like going to be 40 bucks every two weeks to use this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did it because I, I was fortunate enough that I could afford it. But it would have been a lot easier decision to make if I wasn't out of pocket, you know, 80 bucks a month at that yeah. time. I'm on a lower dose now, so it's not as expensive. But it, at first, like 80 bucks a month to somebody on disability would be you're talking about maybe 10% of their income. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Astronomical. And guess what? Um, for those folks in your situation, you know, they get started on an opioid for, for a medical indication, but 80% of the folks who go on to abuse heroin got started with that first prescription. And we all know how crazy the opioid crisis is here in Canada and in the U S and to me, it always made sense why don't we avoid the first prescription? And so certainly CBD can do that. But again, if there's no coverage, it creates this, this situation that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. 
Um, I talked to a gentleman for my first book just briefly when I was writing my first book who was a football player who blew out his knee when he was in college. He's a college football player, blew out his knee, uh, like tore his ACL, had to have surgery. They put him on Oxycontin. He got hooked on it. And after they took him off of it, he actually went and broke his own foot so that he could get more. So he beat his own foot in so bad that they gave him more pills Hmm. and it just it spiraled from there and eventually ended up robbing a, an armored car to fund his drug habit. And he got caught and he's clean now, but pretty wild story to just go from, I need knee surgery to now I'm robbing an armored car because I need drug money. Wow. And that's not a, that's not really that unique of a story either. No, no, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And Blake, speaking of opioids, didn't you have some role in research with the Lynn? Yeah. Yeah. So prior to COVID, um, I was part of the the opioid reduction strategy, and our take on that was because physicians didn't have any baseline knowledge on the endocannabinoid system, nor feel comfortable in prescribing cannabinoids as a result, that strategy involved, uh, I went around to the different family health teams and educated the physicians in the endocannabinoid system, and then how to use CBD and THC in practice. And the thought there was uh, part of the, the strategy of reduction. Again, if we can avoid that first prescription, then that's certainly uh, a tool in the toolbox. And we did have good success. We saw a lot of the family health teams, they measure things like this, mean morphine equivalents. That's how they, they measure their, their opioid stats. And as expected, and I was pleased to see this, as we, we did that, we saw the numbers come down, but the only disappointing thing with that role was as soon as COVID hit, that's when um, they decided to, to cut the whole the project and the funding, and uh, we weren't able to expand upon that work. Unreal. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. People, but people didn't have any mental health issues during the pandemic, right? Right. right. That was not an issue that... Yeah. Yes. That's why it was it was as backwards on that decision. Like we should have ramped up because of of what we saw. And of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. But certainly, there was no slowing down with with the opioid stats. And in fact, we saw them ramp up. So I'm hopeful um, someday we can continue that work because we did lay a lot of good groundwork, and it just needs to get rebooted. Hindsight's twenty twenty. That's a good slogan for the pandemic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Touche. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. not bad. Let's make Speaking some shirts. Of, uh, yeah. That is actually a pretty good shirt. We should, we should market that one. This episode is brought to you by Bad Workwear North America. Bad is a fashion forward workwear brand from Australia with a wide selection of workwear for men and women that is not only durable and functional, but stylish and modern as well. With items like slim fit work pants, waterproof hoodies, and a robust women's lineup, you're sure to find something you'll love. They offer free returns and exchanges on all orders. And listeners of this show, you can use the code SECONDSTORY at checkout to get 10% off your first order at badnorthamerica.com. Once again, use the code SECONDSTORY at badnorthamerica.com and treat yourself to some new gear. So I, I'll tell you my story when I was in the hospital. So I mentioned earlier, six weeks in the hospital, couldn't walk. I actually was on an orthopedic unit of a hospital. 
had a surgeon. They it appeared like I was going to have some type of a surgery, but they were just trying to figure out what was actually wrong with me. Um, about three weeks into my stay, I became very frustrated because I kept telling them I feel like I have a hip issue. And they just kept looking at my back because I had a herniated disc, which I mean, kind of makes sense. It was the most obvious thing that pre- that presented itself. My surgeon, though, I never met, never met the person. And at one point, I actually said, when am I going to meet this guy? And they're like, actually, your surgeon is a female. I was like, there you go. Like, I didn't even know that. <laughs> and this is supposed to be the person who's going to, you know, cut me open and operate on me, which it never ended up happening. But I never the entire I was there four weeks never met the surgeon. They just shipped me off to another hospital. That was it. Um, but that's, that's pretty wild to, to go through something that's that, that big of a deal. And you never actually meet the person just because they were so overworked. Like I don't really fault the doctor. I fault the system that that doctor has to work in, which is just terrible. But I want to touch on one other thing that you said. Um, I'd actually written this quote down earlier and I was going to ask you about it if it was true, but I think you kind of just proved that it is. One of the residents that was there at one point said to me about Western medicine, they said, the problem with Western medicine is that it's completely reactionary instead of actionary. He's like, so we wait till somebody's morbidly obese and then they come in and we say, hey, we're going to we're going to try to fix you now versus like stopping that person 5, 10, 15 years beforehand and being like, hey, your diet is terrible. You don't exercise. You should probably do those baseline things so that you don't end up in here with diabetes, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, that's true. Oh, it is. It is very true. And it's 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 the biggest thing in, in healthcare at the moment is if we can shift to that prevention mode Again, strain on the system, cost. That is where it's at. That's where everything needs to to be focused. Um, Peter Atia, who's a great follow and just wrote a, a great book um, on longevity and, and living well, really highlights that. And he phrases it as medicine 2.0 is is where we were at with oh you're, you're obese. Let's let's act now. Now you have that blockage in your coronary artery. Let's fix it now. You have diabetes. Now it's time to treat you because you know you've reached this level. This is when we intervene. And it is so much more advantageous to start well before these processes even develop. And we can, but we're talking 10, 20 years before is when we when we need to. Um, so that resident was right then. There's a big big push amongst small amounts of individuals within medicine to really shift to that to that model. And again, that comes back to educating that in med school, that comes back to educating doctors on that now and informing patients because patients don't don't know that. And I think if everybody had a little bit more education on that, people would be more proactive to make the choices in the 20s and 30s as opposed to getting the stent when you're 60 or going on insulin when you're 60, it can be avoided. It just happens to happen. It has to happen much, much earlier. I already know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways, just so that you can answer it in a much more educated fashion. Why is there only a minority of people pushing that? Why don't the majority of, like you say, you know, doctors, people push that, hey, you know, in your 20s, in your 30s, be healthy, exercise, eat right, all that stuff. Why, why does that push not exist yet? I don't, I don't know. Uh, I do know that it's, it's not in the curriculum. 
So, you know, for the physicians that go to med school, it is simply just not discussed. I want to talk uh, nutrition. There isn't, there isn't really any class. Maybe there's a half an hour talk in second year or something like that. But a lot of these preventative ideas and approaches simply aren't taught in med school. And uh, it took me just being curious and obviously being curious about a lot of things to dive into some of these areas. What do you think the answer is, Josh? <laughs> what do I think the answer is? I think there's enough of a powerful lobby that pushes to not have that happen, whether it's pharmaceutical companies, yeah, uh, profitable food, food yeah. manufacturers. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like if you're if you're manufacturing potato chips, it's not in your interest to be telling people in their 20s, hey, maybe you shouldn't eat that. Maybe you should yeah. eat apples instead. And I think the most powerful lobbies are not like your local you know, produce operator who's got a stand at the market who's selling apples and carrots and all that healthy stuff. It's the big, you know, fast food companies, the big, you know, snack manufacturers, the big, you know, soft drink manufacturers. They have a lot of power and a lot of influence. And I think they really exhibit that. They do. They do. And it's certainly not even um, like conspiracy theory talk. It is true. And even uh, I was following a guy yesterday. He went to Stanford Medical School to to see the grounds. And right as soon as you walk in this Institute of Health, Coca Cola machine, the vending machine has all the chips and chocolate bars, and so they they do have a lot of influence. And in the U.S., where the they're on the folks that are on food stamps and things like that. The lobbyists have control over that. They folks can instead of choosing the the healthy option, they often go. They can use their their allotments to get coke chips, and it's it's this cycle where that's the money that's given by the government, and people then are spending it on these harmful foods. So there's there's a big push over there as well to start regulating that and and kind of having a stream for healthier options for people who who need it. And there's a it's it's almost become a bit of a third rail too, telling people to be healthy. Just mm -hmm. if you remember, I think it was 2021, Joe Rogan said, my advice to young people would be to exercise and eat healthy. And that was it. And people like freaked out about that. They're like, he's not a doctor and <laughs> all this kind of stuff. <laughs> it's like all he's telling you is to just maybe eat right and, you know, yeah. get up off your couch. And like that was somehow a controversial statement, which is just nuts. Yeah. And exercise if we could make it a pill, blockbuster pill, because lowered cardiovascular risk rates, right? We're learning dementia rates for the people that exercise or do weight-bearing exercise are lower. Like almost every, every one of these chronic conditions, obesity, diabetes, Alzheimer's, dementia, can be reduced with exercise. So it's, it's no BS, and, and we'll continue to kind of to shout it out there. I think it's really cool too the way that you talk about um, the way that you showcase your own journey, Blake. Like you're always putting up the walks that you do, the nature walks. You're getting up in the morning. You're going out paddleboarding. All these things that um, it really showcases to your patients and your followers and everything that that right there is probably more important than any medication out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for, for saying that because that, that really 
was kind of the intention with with the, the social platforms was to highlight that because who am I to say, you know, do these things if I'm not walking the walk as well. So I'm really trying to use um, the social media channels to to walk the walk, to kind of show examples of what these activities are. And I've, I'm even trying to use it as to keep myself on track because if I can, it's almost kind of using social media to my advantage. Rather it running my show and me always checking, I'm trying to, to use it to help me. So I, if I have to go for that run or, or paddleboard, to post like it's it's kind of a neat way to keep me accountable in my own health yeah like i've walked into that doctor's office where he's 65 pounds overweight and tell me be careful you could become pre-diabetic <laughs> you know like <laughs> yeah 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 it's, it's like, like what <laughs> doc, you're the are you the right person to be telling me this <laughs> and speaking of pre-diabetes i just saw um a physician I follow in in the U.S. and she's eliminated her prediabetes by continuous glucose monitoring. So these these new state of the art tools, again, you so what that is is it, it monitors your monitors your glucose continuously as you would expect with that name. But <laughs> that's where you put it on your arm, you can see it on your phone, your glucose levels, and it's another example of knowledge is power and a natural solution because once you're aware of your glucose levels and how sleep affects it or what you what food does this you can really control that so she was able to just by monitoring her her glucose levels paying attention now she's she's out of prediabetes um so it's it's really cool some of the the new tech that can help you put your health in your own hands as well do you think that I, I we've talked a lot about social media on this show being sort of toxic, but one thing that I, I actually think social media is having a positive effect on is it's making a, a lot of people a lot more aware of their own health. I think this is true anyway. I may be wrong, but at least in my circles, I've noticed that people, uh, they tend to follow you know nutritionists. They tend to follow people who talk a lot about exercise. Do you think that that we're kind of turning a corner when it comes to that because of you know maybe social media is playing a part in it? I hope so. I think that's true, certainly in in my circles as well. Um, and it's all, of course linked to the the right follow too, because there's like a lot of people putting a lot of health info out there that maybe shouldn't be. So I'm with you as long as it's it's good quality, then it's it's a wonderful tool for health. And the thing with social media is like when you consume with purpose like that, 100%, super valuable, where people get into the issues, of course, is kind of opening it and just openly scrolling and like whatever pops up, they're consuming. And that's, that's kind of where that negative side or the downside is. And you, you know, two hours later, it's like, what was I even doing? Um, so I think, I do think it's, it's a great tool when used wisely and just personally, that's one of the things I've been trying to do is set, set the, the timers or have the app that like locks, locks you out. You can't go in it after six or set your, um, your notifications to, 
to sleep mode. And when you do that, it can be really used as a tool. And actually, I'd like to see, um, like to see this being taught in schools. You know, the kids these days, they don't, they don't do that. They don't, they aren't, they aren't aware of that or how it's, it's not being stressed how to understand it. And I think that would be useful curriculum for the, for the kiddos to, to have kind of an understanding of how this social media algorithm works and why they should, you know, put some limitations on it. Yeah. Otherwise you're just sitting on the couch uh, watching 20 YouTube videos on why you should go out for a walk. Yeah. It's like, damn, I should have just gone out for a walk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You could have listened Here's, to it too while you were out for yeah. your walk. You could have just listened on a yeah. podcast or something like that. Exactly. Here's how to walk. Here's how to walk properly. Like, damn, <laughs> One foot in front of the other. Yeah. She just went out and walked. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've seen those. The, um, you talk a lot on your website about progressive medicine. I'm curious, what to, what does that mean to you, the term progressive medicine? To me, it's it's almost an oxymoron in that it's progressive medicine is almost an old school approach. So the things like diet, the exercise, like that, those are progressive things that doctors never talked about in the past. But with our patients, that is the the emphasis. And it's funny that it's progressive because again, it's so old school. But it's really those things. There's that that anchor of of the exercise the nutrition the sleep the good healthy relationships social interactions right that's a big piece and then a little more progressive therapeutics in the cannabinoids in psychedelics um and even those even though again the term progressive rather old school as well of course they've been around longer than you and i have um, but that's that's where it is. And, and utilizing cannabinoids again for pain or sleep to get you back to where you can exercise again. Like we've had folks that because of their pain, they were they're really limited in their mobility, developed prediabetes or diabetes. And once the pain got better, once they started sleeping, medications got reduced. Um, so that's that's a really cool part. And on on my little podcast where we interview the patients, that was the one we're clipping up right now is a lady who who literally came off came off her insulin once her pain and everything got better and she was able to move around. So that's it too. And then the psychedelic piece, we can't prescribe them yet. You can through a special access scheme, but again, to the can- Canadian system being flawed, if I want to help someone with end-of-life distress use um, psilocybin mushrooms, it's about an eight month wait for the paperwork and the patient's terminal and the system is just, it's terrible. So our hands are tied right now for physicians to utilize some of those things. But once the framework comes in place, you'll see things like psilocybin, uh, MDMA be used for, for a number of mental health conditions, but where the evidence is, is PTSD and refractory depression at the moment. Yeah, that I find very interesting is that we're going down that path, which it's kind of funny in a way because a lot of the critics of cannabis were like, well, then they'll make everything else legal. And my argument to that has always been, well, it probably should be. Legal. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's kind of nuts that we're like, no, you can't have this plant, but this other plant is cool. You can yeah. have that one. It's, yeah. It's always been kind of a silly 
a silly yeah. way to think. Yeah, but. like caffeine's okay, but this isn't. And this plant, no, but yes. And it is silly, um, but it's it's interesting times. Um, when it comes to the psychedelics, the interesting thing there is cannabis kind of opened the door, if you will. And psychedelics will actually have a much easier time becoming mainstream with physicians because there is a body of, of evidence. The research has been going on for years, and but for very specific indications. So cannabis, oh, it's everything to everybody. And it's it was almost unbelievable, even though it, it does have a lot of benefits for sleep, pain, seizure disorders, right? But where psychedelics is going to be much more accepted amongst the medical community, it's a very narrow lens end-of-life distress, refractory depression, PTSD, like very, this is the lane, and it will it will have a much easier time um, in the medical community. Do you think we're going to get to a point where we've completely, in Canada, where we've completely decriminalized drugs? Do you think that's sort of what's around the corner? Maybe not around the corner, but like down the road somewhere? I think that's where we're heading, yeah. You see, you see that in Portugal, they... They were the ones who took the lead on that, and that experiment has gone just fine over there. There's certainly calls for action in the States and here in Canada, and there's like initial steps. But yeah, yeah, I do think that's going to be the case. And then I think we really need to then emphasize the treatment for the people who are abusing those drugs, like really the investment in the treatment programs, like if they're going to supply them to these folks, then they need that support network with proper counseling and ways to get them off of them eventually. Yeah. And I'm assuming you see that like based on the Portugal experiment, I've read quite a bit about it. You see that as like, that would be a net benefit to society if we did do that. I think, I think so. I think like the, the war on drugs is over. I think it's time for more of a nuanced conversation and who knows what it's going to look like, but I think some next steps going in that direction will ultimately be be a positive. Yeah. Drugs won. Congratulations, drugs. Yeah. <laughs> you, you took it. Yeah. Um, I, I tend to agree with that, too. I think the, the thing that people really get confused by when you talk about, you know, drug legalization is they're like, oh, what's next? Like crime's going to be legal because they think about yeah. somebody who becomes a drug addict and they commit a violent crime. Like I mentioned, the the armored car robbery, they think that because drugs are legalized, that all of a sudden armed robbery is going to be legalized. And those, they're conflating the two things they are completely different. But the the drug component of that, the drug addiction component, that is something that you know, you look at all the mental health treatment that should really be treated as a you know part of mental health crisis, I think, at least. Absolutely. Because, I mean, it's it's extremely rare to see someone who is abusing drugs or addicted to any substance, whether it's drugs, gambling, cocaine, caffeine, whatever. But it's exceedingly rare that they don't have some type of prior trauma, some type of underlying mental health condition um oftentimes it's they're using whatever the thing is to escape that pain or to escape that memory or so they're undoubtedly tied together and it's through that lens that i think the most progress will be made yeah i uh 
I remember when I was going through the whole thing in the hospital, thinking to myself, like, I hope this doesn't get its hooks into me. And I, I kind of felt like it was when I was taking like hydromorpho and stuff like that. I was like this, I could easily see how someone would just fall in love with easing their pain. Mm-hmm. Like it just seems like such an easy thing to just, oh, the pain's starting to go away. I love that. And just, yeah. Yeah. you know. And in that scenario, it starts as the pain from the surgery, but oftentimes the people who do get hooked, oh, the pain from those thoughts I was having were gone too. Like, sure, it was helping that pain from the surgery, but while they, why they get hooked and stay on it, when that pain's gone, they're still using it as that means to self-medicate whatever else it was helping with, and that's how you get into that long-term addiction cycle. Yeah. I want to kind of steel man the argument against cannabis and, you know, it, it tends to be more of a, uh, an old school line of thinking, but a lot of people will say, uh, they'll worry about the issue with kids and what, you know, it can alter their brains, stuff like that. That's always been a common narrative that you hear, or people will say there's not enough data to support the usage or not enough evidence that exists that supports using things like cannabis, uh, psychedelics in a way to treat medical conditions. What would you say to something like that? I'm sure you've heard that argument before. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So for the first one, it's it's the distinction between medical and recreational cannabis. And certainly for the kids, the, the brain's still developing. Nobody nobody authorizes that for, for children to use, except if there is you know, a certain condition that requires it, like refractory epilepsy, severe autism, but that that is a concern, the developing brains. So we don't usually recommend and certainly don't want any kids smoking THC, using THC. So that's valid. And that is the distinction between medical versus recreational and dosing. Um, but when it comes to adults and when it comes to medical diagnoses and the idea that there isn't enough evidence, because that that is certainly when I speak with other physicians and I've educated over a thousand now in Canada and Australia, Germany, it, that's the, that's the one kind of common theme for folks who don't want to adopt it into practice is there isn't enough large randomized control trials. Therefore I can't prescribe this. And it's a bit of a misnomer. And we we talk about this with them and that's where you can have an opinion, an informed opinion. That's more of a talking point to someone who just, it's easier to just not prescribe it and keep doing what you're doing. And I certainly can understand that with physicians because we're all overworked. It's busy. Writing a cannabis prescription takes a bit more time. So it's easy to be like, not enough evidence. But the truth is, it is a nuanced conversation. And when you look at all the case reports, case series. These are, these are things that contribute to the body of evidence. Observational studies, randomized control trials, real-world evidence. Now we have these real-world evidence trials where you're actually you're looking at using the product in real patients, like fast-tracking um, some, of the, some of the traditional models. So there's this large body of evidence that you can have an informed opinion on rather than just kind of parrot or kind of uh, that talking point, no, there's not enough evidence. There certainly is to have an informed opinion. And that's what we try to stress along with the understanding that you couldn't 
do the research because it was restricted and no one would fund it. So when someone says, yeah, but that trial is only 50 or 100 patients, they have to understand the why behind it. So long-winded way of saying there's certainly that, that element out there of there not being enough perceived evidence, but certainly there is, and you just have to take the time to review the whole, the whole body. Yeah, it makes sense. It's like any any debate. There's a lot more nuance to it than you know. People will kind of depending on what side they're on, they'll kind of only throw their talking points versus having sort of a, a discussion that's in the gray area of it. So, yeah, I think yeah. that's good. Um, so one thing that you've mentioned a few times here, and I see it all over your website, is talking about pain management. I feel like it. it I don't know, maybe because I've been in chronic pain for over six years, I'm just like, there's got to be an epidemic out there of people of like of chronic pain. Cause I talk anytime I mention it, people are like, Oh yeah, I've had this thing for years and it seems like everybody's got something. Is that, is that your experience too, that you like, you feel like there's kind of an undiscussed uh, chronic pain epidemic that exists in Canada? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's accurate. I would say it's, it's a very common condition in primary care and even more reason for, for docs to get comfortable with, alternatives. And that means not just cannabinoid-based medicines, but cognitive behavioral therapy for chronic pain, other modalities uh, like even oh, meditation and things of that nature, mindfulness, dietary changes. You said, Josh, that you know that lower inflammatory diet had been helpful for you. And so it's chronic pain is a big part of primary care. And that's where having multiple different options is certainly beneficial. I would say in addition to chronic pain epidemic, there's almost two epidemics and they're related. And this now makes up, honestly, probably about 60 to 70% of a primary care physician's day these days. And that's the combination of chronic pain and mental health disorders and that that really in a, in a physician's day is taking up uh, a lot of the clinical visits, and that's where robust, holistic care for both of those things, chronic pain and mental health, is certainly needed. You probably can't put a number on this, but in terms of chronic pain, what pers- like how much of it would you say you would attribute to just lifestyle? So we keep talking about diet and exercise, but like if you had to ballpark it percentage wise. How much of it do you think would be based on those things? It's a good question. I would say without a, a number, a, it's, it's, it's a good, there is a, a major component of that lifestyle, sleep, exercise, nutrition that is impacting those chronic pain diagnoses. Now, if someone gets hit by a, a car or something and there's a direct cause, right? <laughs> Yeah. Sure, we're not going to say, "Hey, you, Josh, you should have ate some kale, and you would have avoided that <laughs> car accident." <laughs> I do love kale, but it hasn't helped the car accident. Thing. It is delicious. Saute it; it's yeah. great. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> but um, it's more on the degenerative side. So, th- so things like osteoarthritis, things like diabetes, things of that nature, obesity. When you put more strain on the joints, yeah, there's going to be more pain. When you develop diabetes, 
and then you develop the neuropathy or peripheral neuropathy symptoms, yeah, there's going to be pain. And it's because way back when the lifestyle caused it. So hard to say on a number, but certainly probably my opinion, those chronic diseases are so prevalent, diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, that I don't think 50% of 50% would be out of the ballpark where if, if you could kind of adjust that lifestyle, you could reduce your pain as a result or avoid the condition that led to those pain symptoms. Yeah. Makes sense. I wonder too, if kind of the change in people's, like you were talking about lifestyle, but yeah, change in people's careers. We're not working out um, as often. We're sitting at desks working um, a lot of working from home remotely now. Uh, I wonder if that also attributes to some of these chronic pain issues. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. The more, the more we're not in motion, the more chance that's, that's going to happen. Pandemic again, did not help the the cause, but the good news is it it is reversible. It can be changed. But so what we do for people who want to get back into that is first try and of course manage the pain symptoms. But then we have a real low and slow approach with resuming activity, and it's not because we want to we don't want to overdo it on the patient. It's more on the on the habit side establishing a new habit and and that is where tiny habits whether it's the bj fog book tiny habits or it's that um, atomic habits but the the messaging is the same and it's let's say it's someone for walking first week walk one minute but every day at the same time and people will be like one minute that's nothing but it's literally the act of same time being consistent anchoring it to after my coffee, I will go for my walk. And then you do that for a week, then okay, five minutes, 10. But that's that's what we do as a way to, to kickstart people into those good habits is really starting tiny and having some wins early. I remember years ago talking with a friend of mine and he, he was talking about like his, so <laughs> it's kind of funny. He was sitting at his computer playing poker online, also smoking a cigarette, drinking, and he was rolling a joint at the same time. So he's doing all these things. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was like, dude, how do you afford like all these vices? He's like, yeah, man, something ha- has to give. But what he said, he's like, it's so easy to form bad habits. And I remember him saying that I was like, is it really all that hard to form good habits? Like habits are easy to form, yeah. but I feel like good or bad habits are easy to form. Like if you just yeah. get into the routine of something, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. I feel yeah. like once you've done it for a couple of weeks, like it just yeah. becomes, like you say, a habit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whether it's good or bad, the rules of the habit formation are the same. So make it obvious, like make it obvious, time, date. Uh, the second one is like make it attractive. So I make it somehow compelling or, you know, stack it to something you want to do after. But the, ru- the rules are the, are the same, whether it's a good habit or a bad habit. Yeah, it's just there's some mental block about forming good habits. I have it too. Like, it's always hard to start a really good habit. It's, uh, I don't know why that is. <laughs> same Cause, here. Because you're lazy. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, Question for you, Blake. What would you consider to be your second story? My second story is evolving almost every 
every year, I would say, you know, like it's, I think the most obvious second story would be the, the big switch from family medicine to cannabinoid medicine, you know, going out on that limb, no guarantees of, of patience or, or success, but just really trusting in, in what I was seeing clinically to, to take it onto my own. But yeah, that, that would be kind of the second story at the moment, but it, it evolves like starting the, the agency where we're helping some of these companies with their marketing strategies and, and doing the education to physicians and research that I never thought I'd be doing dementia research for instance. So that's become a bit of a, a second story where I'm, I'm doing more research. And to be honest, you guys, it's, it's even this past year, there's been transition on how I'm running the practice and the direction, taking it with more holistic things into the exercise and sleep and even talking to people about habit formation. Um, so, so yeah, so perhaps there's a, a few second stories and that's kind of how I like it. And hopefully in the future, maybe some more. Yeah. We'll have you on again. eh? <laughs> yeah. Well, t- yeah, you can tell your second, second story. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to position to people to watch this particular podcast with you. What would you say they're going to take from it? I would say they're going to take from it a good chat with a couple good guys talking about all things important to health, exercise, nutrition, right? Proper sleep, proper social relations, how to use social media, all of the all of the things really and even getting into of course what I do clinically talking about cannabinoid based medicines and a nice little discussion on on psychedelics as well. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming on, man. <laughs>